All right. So it's exciting to be back. It's great to come and talk about sex with you guys. Exciting, right? All right. Um, so before we get into it, let's just uh, go to the Lord in prayer. I thought he would be with us this evening. Lord, we just thank you uh, that you've given us your word. Uh, we thank you that you've given us your wisdom, and we thank you that um, you love us and you care for us and that you want to teach us what is good and right for us, Lord. We thank you that you've made us in your image and that uh, we seek to glorify you, Lord. I just pray that you be um, with us today as we listen, and I pray that the meditation of our hearts and everything that is in our mind will be pleasing to you, Lord. In your glory, in my name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... Uh, those of you that have your Bibles or uh, your phones or whatever devices, uh, let's quickly turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, I'll be reading from verse 1 to 5. So Isaiah is one of my favorite prophets in the Bible. Actually, probably my favorite prophet. Um, there's just so much in that book that we can learn um, about God, where he starts off by telling Israel about God's coming judgment and the, the impending exile, and then after that, the hope that is coming with Jesus Christ. But he starts off in um, the first five chapters kind of, kind of laying the groundwork. And now we find him in chapter 6, talking about this vision that he has of God's throne. So verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood a seraphim. Uh, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he starts off by kind of telling us about this, about the time, the time frame. He says, in the year that King Uzziah, this is what happened. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Who is this King Uzziah? Well, Isaiah is trying to point to us a very significant fact. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. No one in this room is even 40 years old. And you've got this king reigning for 52 years. And he's trying to remind people that, look, King Uzziah reigned for a really long time. But God is still on his throne. The king of king is still reigning. King Uzziah has died. He's gone through his huge reign, but God is still on his throne. He is the king of kings. He was there before King Uzziah and he'll be there after King Uzziah. He deserves to be exalted, highly exalted for who he is. He talks about the robe of his, um, the robe filling the temple. And we think about this idea of almost like a, like a wedding dress, a wedding gown. Uh, back in the day, I don't know if it's still a thing now, but the longer the wedding dress, the more um, exalted and uh, precious it, it seemed. But here we've got a, a kind of a picture of the temple full of God's robe. Isaiah is trying to remind us of how holy this creature is sitting on the throne. And then it goes on in verse 2 to say, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These are no ordinary angels. 
I feel like when you think angels, there's a tendency to think about, I don't know, a Tinkerbell kind of being. You know, kind of like fairy flapping wings. But these were talking about big, scary beings. Two of these. It took two of these to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember back in the story. These were strong beings. And if you remember, every time um, an angel showed up in the Bible, they said the same thing. They always said, do not fear, get up. Why? Because people would see the glory coming out of this angel and want to get down to their, to their feet, uh, to their knees and worship. But they would say, no, get up, because I'm not the one you're supposed to be worshipping. He's the one you're supposed to be worshipping. So this is the kind of creature we're talking about that is flying around God's throne and kind of is in awe of God's glory. And they're singing, as verse 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is something that they do in their entire existence. It's something that they're doing right now, something they were doing during Isaiah's time, and something they would do for all eternity, just singing, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> now I want you to imagine that. This is a creature much bigger than ourselves much bigger than anything we can imagine, much glorious than anything we can imagine, but yet it's pointing to a much bigger being. A friend of mine once asked me, just hypothetically, that what do you think is closer to God? You know, an angel like this one or a worm is set under the ground. Now, I mean, obviously your brain will go towards the angel and you think about that. But the reality of the matter of it is that it's actually neither. Because the fact that God is holy and we think about holiness as this idea of purity, right? This, this clean kind of white um, image comes to our minds. But the holiness of God has to do with how transcendent he is, how separate he is, how different he is from everything. Saying that the angel is closer to God is like saying, I'm closer to the sun because I'm taller than you. Now, if you know how far the sun is, you know it's, it's insignificant that I'm taller than you. That's how different God is. That's how holy he is. And that's why they're just in awe of him, singing holy, holy, holy around his throne, to the point where the foundations are shaking at the voices of these beings. To the point where Isaiah sees the holiness of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Now the significance of this is that Isaiah is a, is a prophet. So his words had some sort of weight. When he said, Blessed are you, it meant something. When he said, woe is you, it meant something. But in this case, he's almost cursing himself. He's saying, woe is me. Kind of like this contrast between who God is and who he has seen God to be has made him realize his own sin and the people that he lives with. Because he says that, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. Now, why am I talking about this? We're going to talk about sex, right? That was the exciting bit. But here I'm talking about God. It's because we need to understand the God who created sex. We need to understand the holiness and the reason why sexual morality is such a big deal. When we talk about being created in the image of God and what this God desires, it's important that we understand who he is. It's important that we understand how holy he actually is. One of our biggest faults as human beings is that we don't understand that. We don't understand the difference between us and that God. Isaiah had seen that here. He had seen that. And the first thing that came to him is worship and seeing his uncleanness. And if anything, I want us to take that away, uh, to take away from tonight is that God is holy. And we're to remember that when we're living in his world as his image bearers. But remember that as we're dealing with sex as he has created, as he has put it forward to us. We're to honor God in his world. Now, there's also a tendency of thinking about 
sex is this weird thing that no one's supposed to talk about. Like Shady said, I was, I was the same. Like when we were 12, 13 years old, it was kind of like once in a long while, you go into a corner, it's hush, hush, you talk about it, and then that's it. You know, because it was, it was just put as this really gross and grotesque thing. I want to remove the veil for that and remind you that, guess what? Sex was God's idea. Isn't that weird to think about? It was his idea. I think we kind of think about it as this thing where God created Adam and then God created Eve and he went over to do something over here and then he came back and he's like, what are you doing? Don't do that. Like, get off of her. Like, no, it was his idea. He thought about it. His entire book in the Bible dedicated to this. It was his idea. He thought about it and he brought it to being. Meaning that it's something that's supposed to be normal. Quote, unquote, normal. Something that we can talk about it. But at the same time, we also understand the gravity of it. But the simple fact that we have to talk about it today, we remember that it is something that is important, something that is serious. And something that we need to, t- we need to see through the, um, the lens of Scripture. Because our pursuit is holiness, just like this God who made us. In 1 Peter 1 verse 14 and 15, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but... As the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. The one we just heard of, the one that was, um, Isaiah saw and seated on the throne, that holy God, we are to be holy as he is holy. Now, in Ephesians 6, Paul, we, we've got this idea of putting on the full armor of God to fight sin. He says, well, you know, when you talk about lust, when you're talking about like, uh, sorry, not last. We talk about stealing and lying and all these things. Put on the full armor of God and fight it. He talks about the sword, the shield, all these things that you have to prepare yourself to fight sin. But when it comes to sexual lust and sexual immorality, he says flee. It's almost like he puts sexual immorality in its own kind of category. In 2 Peter 2 verse 22, Paul tells Timothy that flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Paul's almost saying like, hey, look, all those other things, take up arms, fight those things, and put them to death. But when it comes to sexual immorality, evil desires in this area, flee. You know what the word flee means? It means literally run away. Now, what that means is not that we'd be scared, we'd be uh, almost timid around it, but he's showing the gravity of how serious this can be. Because temptation is real. It's a real thing. It's not pretend that it's not. And Paul gives us a way to deal with that. He's not saying face it head first. He's saying flee. Do all you can to get away from it. So looking at that verse, uh, there are just three things that I want us to think about in that. Firstly, he says flee those evil desires. So now let's get a bit deeper, open up this thing and expose it for what it is. Because that's what happens when you shine light on something, you expose it. And then, only then can healing start. Those evil desires, we're talking about those things that happen when you're alone in the dark, alone at night. And I keep looking at this side, this side, because I know the, the struggle. But unfortunately, that it's not just you guys, it's the ladies as well. There was a point in time where this discussion was only around for the men. 
But it seems like even as we go, as we grow, as generations keep going, this is a struggle that is just as important for women as well. It's something that we have to be vigilant of. Things like, things like porn and lustful thoughts. It's something that we are bombarded with day in, day out. Unfortunately, 30 years ago, even 20, the definition of porn or what was considered pornographic was very different to what's considered pornographic today. And I know you know what I mean. Nowadays, it's almost like we've been desensitized because unfortunately our culture has changed. What, um, when, when you go from culture to culture, it's almost like there's this gray area, this huge, huge gray area in between where it, nothing's considered sexual anymore. It's almost like, oh, it's okay. I mean, it's just a movie. It had a, had a few sex scenes. Now, I'm not trying to... Um, I'm going to try to put a legalistic veil over your face. But it's about being honest with yourself as a follower of Christ Jesus. We sang, we sang about God being king of our hearts. The things that you watch, the things that you think about, the things that your mind is consumed with, the things that you talk about with your friends at school, the things that you look at on your phone, do they show that Christ is truly king of your heart? Could you honestly say that if I was sitting here, so this is a genuine rule for me. With music that I'm listening to on my phone, with things that I'm watching, I would say if Jesus was here with me, could I watch this? Could I sit here and watch that? Now, again, I don't want to put a legalistic veil over your face, but it's, it's an important way to think about how you're living your life. One of the things we sang, um, one of the lines we sang today was, um, God is no less in the shadows. Is that right? God is no less in the shadows? He's everywhere and he's ever present. They're not, not as, a, as, a, um, as a security guard waiting to like whip you at every, um, every corner. But he's there as a loving God who wants to commune with you. So my question is, what are the places that you're taking him? What are the places that you're um, kind of inviting him into your life? In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul writes to Corinthians saying, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we are imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. Do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's extreme. That's extreme. That's a man who really wants to glorify God and is calling us to do the same because we have a God who is worthy. We have a God that is holy and deserves our praise and our honor daily. Paul says he disciplines his body and to keep it under control. Are you doing the same? Or are you just letting, um, are you letting everything go with your instinct? First uh, Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's a very clear separation there. If you don't know, sanctification just means a pursuit of holiness. 
that you be made more like Christ. And that is, it says, that is God's will, that you will be sanctified, that you be more like Christ. I mean, yes, it's great, and God does want you to, to do well in, um, in those exams coming up. He does want you to have a good life and all those kind of things. But above all, God's will for your life is that you be sanctified. I cannot, I cannot stress that enough. I, I, I think we've, um, we've gravitated towards this Christianity that is very fluffy, that wants you to have a nice thing and just, you know, God just wants you to be happy. And, you know, have you heard the 11th commandment? You know, thou shall be nice. You know, because, you know, God is nice and, you know, Jesus was this guy with wavy hair who was like floriking and whatever. But no, if you know the Jesus of the Bible, you understand that his will is that you will be like him, that you will be sanctified, that you will not take sin for, uh, take it as if it's something that is uh, to be overlooked, but something that you need to control um, in your own body, in holiness and in honor, as Paul says in this verse. The second part of 2 Timothy 2 verse 22 says, uh, so it says, flee, flee the evil desires of youth. And secondly, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So you're not just fleeing from something, you're fleeing towards something. And this is really important. If you flee from it, and you don't go anywhere. And trust me, this, I'm speaking from experience. This weird thing happens where you're running from this and you just do full circle and you run back to it. As you're fleeing from these evil desires, as you're fleeing from sexual immorality, you have to pursue righteousness. You have to pursue a right standing with God. You have to pursue faith, pursue love, and pursue peace. If you... The idea with sin is to take it off. But you're not just taking off the old self, but you're putting on the new one. You're seeking out what God um, desires for your life. What God desires you to do in terms of loving your neighbor and loving him. And finally, he says, so we're, we're fleeing these evil desires and pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So this is not a solo mission. This is not a solo mission. That's another thing I can't emphasize enough. If you try to fight sin by yourself, you will lose. And again, I am talking from experience. Our God, I remember last time I was here, we talked about community. And I said our God is a communal God and he created us as communal beings. In all our doings and all our fighting against sin, especially sexual immorality, we're to do it together. You see, you're, to call, you're, you're to do it along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Go to those who are fighting the same fight as you are. Sisters, go to your sisters and talk about these things. Confess sin for what it is. Because only then do you shine light into dark places and expose these things. Now, speaking of that, We'll go into a more kind of practical sense of these things. Now, but before I do say that, it is not my advice or my take on the matter that's going to save you. It's the understanding the holy God who we serve. The holy God who sits on that throne, that has always sat on that throne, that is sitting on that throne today and will always sit on that throne. That is what is going to save you. When you're alone at night, it's not remembering Larry's advice that's going to save you, but understanding the God whom you serve and the God whom we sin against when we do this. 
And again, sex is a beautiful thing. It's supposed to be something that is enjoyed in its right context being marriage. But we have to understand that this is a serious matter. So from a practical perspective, I call this kind of like part two. It's called make war, right? Number one is treat your sisters slash brothers with dignity and respect. First Timothy 5 verse 2. Paul tells Timothy, saying, oh, start from verse 1, says, Do not rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. Treat younger men as a brother, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Do you know what this means, guys? Whatever is off with your biological sister is off with your spiritual sister. Now, again, there is a risk here that will then mean that, oh, Larry said we should be afraid of our sisters. No, build relationship with your sisters. Build good relationships. Encourage one another. Don't be afraid to be able to to grow in Christ together because that's what family does, right? But here, Paul is telling Timothy, who was a young man, that treat all younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And Paul is saying this because he does know the tendency of being young. He does know what youth does to us. So it's very important to treat your sisters and your brothers with dignity and respect. What does this mean? It means understanding that, first of all, they are valuable. What happens with um, watching the things we watch and uh, going along with the world's idea of sex and thinking about what what the world means when they say sex is that it changes our view of what a woman is, or in your sense, what a man is. It removes her dignity and her pride and she just becomes an object of your lust. Again, I'm looking at these guys because that's the context I know. What happens is that, first of all, you start looking at, um, you look at the TV screen of the girls who are, first of all, super airbrushed. So that becomes your standard of beauty. You come and you meet your sisters and all of a sudden they do not meet that standard. But you don't realize that the standard you're comparing to them doesn't even exist. So when we talk about first treating your sisters with dignity and respect is understanding that first of all they are image bearers. And secondly, God made them beautiful as they are. This is something that I'd been told growing up and I just didn't believe. I, um, I'm excited, I'm getting married in a couple of months. And for the first time I understand this. I understand this. I love the, the, the feeling of walking into a room, seeing my fiance and finding her the most beautiful person in the room. And I'm not saying this just to sound a certain way, but it's something that has become a reality to me. But it only comes from understanding how God has created sex and what he has made in marriage. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, uh, I'm like 13. I don't think I should be thinking about marriage. But that's the context that God has put sex in. It's not too early to prepare for that. Preparing your mind to understand that God has made sex for that one woman or that one man. And I should honor her or honor him in the future by having a good perspective of what sex is now. But understand what it means for a brother to have dignity and respect, to have a sister um, and and treating her with dignity and respect as well. Just as Paul was telling Timothy to treat them with absolute purity. The second thing uh, that I put forward to you guys is don't be alone for long periods of time. Again, 
Don't want to put that legalistic veil on you, but this is a super important one as well. It's that classic example of like, doing this is like going shopping when you don't have any money. One or two things is going to happen. You're either going to leave really unsatisfied or you're going to take something that doesn't belong to you. And that's how it works. And again, something I'm talking from experience. It always starts off really innocent. But the heart is, the heart is a really complex thing. You start building bonds and you start cutting corners and you start breaking rules. You start breaking boundaries. And one thing leads to another. Again, love your sisters. Encourage one another. Love your brothers. Build relationships. But be careful in this area where you don't spend long periods of time alone with opposite sex. The third thing I can put forward is that develop an enmity with sexual sin. Literally hate it. One of the things the world has done really well is it's made us fall in love with this idea, this romanticized idea of what sex should be like. Uh, one of the things that my fiance shared with me recently, maybe I shouldn't share, but I will anyway, but like this idea of you watch uh, a movie or whatever, and you've got this, uh, this guy and girl, guy meets girl, whatever, they fall in love, there's some tragedy, but they end up together, and then there's like, there's a big wedding scene and they go on their honeymoon and the movie always ends there, right? So you watch a bunch of that and especially it seems like a, uh, this is more prone to the ladies but you watch that and you almost have this fantasy view of like it's going to be great, sex is just going to be perfect, it's going um, to just uh, be natural and all these kind of things, nothing's going to go wrong. It's almost like this fantasy view and it makes you just kind of fall in love with this idea that doesn't really exist. It's almost like, even outside the context of marriage, it's just like, oh, it's fine, it's just like the heat of the moment, all this kind of thing. And it makes you fall in love with this um, distorted view of what sex is supposed to be. But if you want to win this battle, if you want to make war and win, you have to develop an enmity with sexual sin. You have to be able to put it in this right context and understand that God has created it for that. Because you don't desire to kill someone who's your friend. So create enmity with it, because that's the only way you're going to be able to make war and win this. The fourth thing I can put forward is make no provision for the flesh. Uh, as Romans 13 verse 14 says, it says, uh, yeah, make no provisions for the, for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't try to be a hero. Don't trust yourself. I heard a pastor once say that um, he didn't let his son, who was, I think, 15 at the time, go out on a date. And a friend said, what's wrong with you? Like, don't you trust your son? Won't you let him go on a date? And he said, no, I don't trust my son. I don't even trust myself. How am I going to trust my son, who's 15 years old, who's a lot, to lack of a better word, a lot foolisher than I am, to go out on a girl unattended? The idea was that you don't, Give the devil a foothold. You don't make provision for the flesh. Uh, a, my pastor, when I was in Sydney, used to tell me how he doesn't even want to find out how sinful his heart can be. So he doesn't give the devil that foothold. Again, this sounds extreme. This sounds way so far-fetched. 
But as my brother here, it's not. You do not want to know how sinful you can be. You do not want to know how far the devil will take it to take you down. Number five is admit sin immediately. Going back to what we talk about, this is not a battle that we fight alone. It's not a solo mission. So don't wait for it to grow. Don't wait for it to fester. And there's a difference between remorse and repentance. There's a very big difference between, uh, oh, I'm just so sorry, or, you know, I just keep losing this battle, between that and actually turning away from it and turning to God and saying, um, I choose you, God. I choose to drink from your living waters rather than those broken cisterns. I choose to actually follow you and desire you above all else. To actually turn away from that is different from just sitting there feeling sorry. Because what happens is when you sit there and you feel sorry for yourself, it goes away, it kind of fades. And then you feel better and you feel like, oh, well, I guess, I guess that's done. And what happens? You're going to do it again. So admit sin immediately. And that's what brothers and sisters are for. That's what we're here for. Because we're here fighting this one fight together. Why? Ultimately, not to look good, not to look great. Because trust me, I'm not going to look great at the end of the day. It's about glorifying God and putting Him on the throne that He deserves to be. <clears throat> and number six, finally, is pray. Pray as if your life depends on it. Because guess what? kind of does. This is a battle that you can only win on your knees. It's a battle that only comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. It's a battle that only, only through the power of the Holy Spirit can you be able to win. Now having, having said all that, you have to remember the context in which sex has been put into. God has created sex for something to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in their marriage. So prepare for that. Be excited for that. Don't let it be something that we hide under the covers and have to talk about. But be excited for the context in which it has been placed. Why? Because you want to honor God. I'll just wrap up with uh, something I read last night from uh, Charles Spurgeon's devotional. It's a bit long, but just bear with me because I just I thought it was great. It is a commonplace thought, and yet it tastes like nectar to the weary heart. Jesus was tempted as I am. You have heard this truth many times, but have you grasped it? He was tempted to the, same, to the very same sins into which we fall. Do not dissociate Jesus from our common manhood. It is a dark room which you are going through, but Jesus went through it before. It is a sharp fight which you are waging, but Jesus has stood foot to foot with the same enemy. Let us be of good cheer. Christ has borne the Lord before us, and the blood-stained footsteps of the King of glory may be seen along the road which we transverse at this hour. There is something sweeter yet. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus never sinned. Then, my soul, it is not needful for thee to sin, for Jesus was a man, and if one man endured these temptations and sinned not, then in his power his members may also cease his members may also cease from sin. Some beginners in the divine life 
um, think that they cannot be tempted without sinning, but they mistake. There is no sin in being tempted, but there is sin in yielding to that temptation. Herein is comfort for the solely tempted ones. There is still more to encourage them if they reflect that the Lord Jesus, though tempted, gloriously triumphed, triumphed. And as he overcame, so surely shall his followers also. For Jesus is a representative man for his people. Their head has triumphs, and the members shall share in the victory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because without Jesus, we are powerless. There is no grace, grace for us. There is no salvation. You can grit your teeth all you want, and you can fight in your own power, but this is a battle that only Christ can win because he has already won. So trust in him, even in this. Trust in him as the one who has created us in his image so that we may be image bearers to the world. We can shine and the world may glorify our Father who is in heaven.